Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. So today we're going to continue our series on the book of Micah, or in the book of Micah, and we're actually coming to close to the end. We're going to be in chapter 6 today, so if you have a Bible, please open it up on chapter 6 of the book of Micah. Next week is going to be our final sermon on chapter 7, which is the closing. And so far, we've seen how Micah portrays a God of justice, how he punishes evil, how uh, Micah defines uh, justice as making straight that which is crooked. And, and we see a God of justice, a God who hates idolatry, who hates oppression, who hates abuse and punishes all of those things. But Micah also portrays a God of, of mercy, a God who loves his people, who loves rebellious people and brings hope to them even when they are in their sin. So today we are going to be in chapter 6 and we will see uh, another way that, that Micah uh, portrays God for us. And we're going to see a God who is a judge, a God who brings his own people to court. So uh, in one of the most famous chapters of the entire Old Testament, Micah 6, in fact, there, there is a network that's called the Micah Network. And it's a, it's a network that, of churches and theologians and pastors who are committed to bringing justice to this world. Uh, and they basically based uh, their entire global ministry on this, on this text. And we're going to be in, in this text today. And what I want you to do before we, we start reading it is that I want you to imagine you're in a courtroom. Because that's basically the language we're going to be hearing from this text in Micah 6. So before we read the text, please join me in praying. Lord, we, we thank you for being a God of justice. We thank you for being a God who is good. And today I pray that through the preaching of your word and through the reading of your word, your spirit will move us, your spirit would transform us. Uh, I pray that we would be confronted, but at the same time comforted by the preaching of your word. Lord, uh, continue to sanctify us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and read our text in Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you from, e from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. 
And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, what you may know, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The, boy, the voice of the Lord cries to the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the, of the rod and, and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You should tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their councils that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we begin to unpack this chapter, the first thing we see is that uh, we have uh, several players in this courtroom. The, the first thing is God is, is the judge. He's the one who, who summons uh, the witnesses or, or the jury. Uh, God is also the prosecutor. He's the one who brings the charge against Israel. And the jury is made up uh, of mountains and, and hills which are the oldest structures on earth, and, and they have witnessed God's faithfulness and patience and love for His people throughout years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And the language here is intentional because God is trying to tell Israel something, and that is that He's been faithful, that He is a God who is good as well. And then, uh, using a lot of judicial language, we're then told that God is going to bring a case. He's suing, contending with his people. And God is bringing an indictment, a charge against Judah and Israel. And, and Israel is a defendant. He is, he is the, the accused. And so, as this trial begins, we open up with a questioning on God's part. God is questioning his people, Israel, in verses 3 to 5. And this questioning brings me to my first point, and that is that God is always faithful. This is what God is trying to convey to Israel. But the first thing that strikes me is, is, is the language of God's, uh, God has for his people. How, how God is so faithful that he continues to refer to Israel as my people. In fact, if you look at verse 3, the first thing that God 
says is, oh, my people. And despite Israel being so unfaithful, they remember what they were doing. They were oppressing each other. They were abusing each other. They were idolaters. They were worshiping all kinds of other gods. And God still calls them, oh, my people. And he still treats them and, and calls them his people, his children. And this is, this is really humbling. I mean, I'm not as patient. When my kids begin misbehaving, I immediately tell my wife, come get your kids. <clears throat> and sometimes I even say that that's the Cabrera, your, your side of the family kicking in. But So God is not like me, thank, thank God. <laughs> And, and when I see what Israel and Judah did to God and are doing to God, it's, it's really impressive to, to see a God that continues to call his rebellious children, oh, my people, oh, my children, oh, my kids. It really shows me that God has always been faithful and will always be faithful beyond what I can even imagine. And again, this, this, this description of God continues to be true. The one that we see repeatedly in the Old Testament that, that we so explicitly see in Exodus 34, 6. God is a God of, who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I did not think of God as somebody who was slow to anger the, the first time I kind of skimmed through the Old Testament. But when you start reading what Israel did to God and how God treated them, even though he punished them so many times, you can really see that God is a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God that is bringing his people to trial. But more than the language, God himself recounts his faithfulness to his people. And honestly, the way that Micah portrays or describes this is heartbreaking. If you look at verse 3, he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I don't know if you can feel it. But there's, 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 a, there's a sense of, of heartbreakingness, or I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up, but God is sad. He's frustrated, he's heartbroken by his children. And God is gonna remind them of everything he's done for them, but he doesn't like it. He's, he doesn't like, he doesn't want this to be. And God says in verse 4 that he delivered them from, Israel, from Egypt out of slavery. He not only delivered them and, and took them out of slavery, he also cared for them in the desert through the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He provided for them. He they actually interceded on behalf of the people. God cared for Israel over and over again. And then in verse 5, God reminds them of an incident with Balak, or Balak, the king of Moab, who is a king that when, they, when, when Israel crossed the Jordan, and this is in Numbers 22 to 24, when Israel crossed the Jordan on their way to the promised land, this, this Moabite king was afraid of their people, so he actually went and, and sought out this crooked prophet named Balaam. 
And you might remember Balaam because this is the guy who struck his donkey many times and God opened his, the, the mouth of the, the donkey to, to talk to him because there was an angel in front of the donkey and Balaam couldn't see it, but the donkey was able to see it and then God opened the mouth. Remember that story? That's him. That's the crooked uh, prophet that this king was seeking so that he could curse Israel so that Israel would not conquer his land or, or go through his land. And, and especially he didn't want them to go to the promised land. But then God talks to Balaam and he actually tells Balaam, you cannot curse my people because I have already blessed them. So God protects Israel. God blesses Israel. God provides for Israel. And this is what God is saying. What did I do to you? What have I done to you other than bless you? Other than care for you, other than provide for you, other than deliver you. God blessed Israel in the presence of their enemies. On their way to the promised land, God protected them. And God is telling them, I have done all these things to show you my justice, to show you my righteous acts. That's what God says in verse 5. So God comes to his people and and. and in a broken-hearted way, he says, tell me, what have I, why have you acted this way? I've been faithful to you for hundreds of years. And the mountains know this. They are first-hand witnesses of how I, I've been patient with you. And this is truly convicting because we can all find ourselves in the same place of Israel. We can all recount God's blessing blessings towards us and realize that he's always been faithful and he continues to be today but the reality is that sometimes or many times we are unfaithful to him but God is always faithful despite our unfaithfulness now we move on to what Israel response is Verse 6 and 7 tell us how they respond. And they ask, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Do you see the, you see the escalation of, of, of Israel's options to please God or to appease God? Israel seems to be moved to some sort of guilt. They realize they, 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 they did something that was very wrong and they want to do something about it. And, and this shows some sort of repentance or, or remorse. I don't think it's the full repentance and we'll see why in a minute. But, but some of the things that are mentioned here might be a little weird to us, but the reality is that the, the sacrificing of animals and the sacrificing or burning of your possessions and even the sacrifices of children back in those times were, were very common among pagan gods. This is what Israel was doing. They wanted to appease God in the same way they used to appease the other gods. So they did what they were used to doing. But if we look closely, we realize that even their response is very selfish. Which is my second point. First point is that God is always faithful. 
but we are always, or we are very selfish. And the reason why I say we is because we can, we can find a parallel between us and Israel. This is basically the way we act as children of God. And this shows us how selfish Israel is. Look at the answer that Israel gives. They understand the seriousness of their sin. They don't make excuses. They don't defend themselves. They, they acknowledge their fault. But accepting your fault is only half of the solution of a problem. And the way they respond exposes even more their selfishness. So this is what Israel does. Everything they, su they suggest, all their ideas about how to make, make it up to God, are about giving up something that is not themselves. All of their ideas is about giving up something, sacrificing something that is not them. They start with burnt offerings, something small. They move on to calves, maybe, something a little bigger. Maybe thousands of rams. And they keep going up, maybe, maybe rivers of oils of oil. And they end up with a radical, even thinking of killing their own children. So in today's language, maybe we can say that sometimes we think we can appease God by maybe giving stuff. Maybe this could be, I can probably give an offering. Maybe my whole paycheck. Maybe can I give my car? Maybe I can give even more than that. Maybe I can sacrifice my family. But the reality is that this exposes how selfish Israel is, even in trying to make it up to God, even in trying to pay their debt. And this is a very Western way of thinking and a very Western way of dealing with our faults. It's almost like saying, I know that I was wrong. You know, I know that I messed up, but what can I do to fix it? Just tell me how much is this going to cost me to get it over with. But the, obje the objective here is, is basically asking, how can I sacrifice anything except myself to make this right? How can I give up stuff or even others instead of just giving up myself? And that's precisely what most of us do today as well. We believe that we can give enough so that we can earn God's forgiveness. Some of us still believe that we can serve enough in church in order to earn God's grace. We, can even, we, we believe that we can pray enough or read the Bible enough or go to, uh, to enough events to appease God. But we mostly want to appease our guilt without really changing or giving up ourselves. Puerto Rican theologian and professor Pablo Jimenez commenting on this text says, therefore, this text teaches us something very important today. God cannot be bought. God cannot be bribed and God cannot be manipulated. God's grace is not for sale. And this is so powerful and important for us as it was for Israel because we are selfish and we want to manipulate our way to heaven without it cost, truly costing us something deep or a radical change. 
Israel did not understand that the rituals that God put in place, the sacrifices that were in place, were only a representation of of what God truly desired, which was the mortification of ourselves, the giving up of ourselves, the constant denying of ourselves in obedience to God. That's what God wanted of His people. And this is what He's going to tell them. So God responds to Israel Micah interrupts Israel. He actually tells them what God God requires of them. Because we have a God who requires justice. Our God requires justice. And this is not the first or the second or the third time that God is going to tell Israel this. What God requires of them. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God has to continually remind Israel of these things. But I would like to go to uh, and briefly read the original text where God, for the first time, told them exactly what He required of them. And that's in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 19. And I'm just going to read uh, two portions of that, of that passage to better understand what, what Micah is talking about. Most scholars believe that this is exactly what, what, what Micah is uh, referring to when he says, you know what God requires of you. He already told you what He requires of you. So Deuteronomy 10 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commitments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you to today for your good? Up until this point, it seems like it has nothing to do with what Micah is saying. But if you keep reading the text, God, God actually explains to us what this means. Verse 16. In the exact same wording of the Apostle Paul, Moses says, or God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. It's not about what you do, it's about your heart. And be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the group that we continually see God bring up, the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, giving them or him food and clothing. And then he commands us, what does it mean that you need to live and like love my word and love me? What does it mean? It means loving the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is exactly what Micah is talking about when he says, Israel, God has already told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what what Micah is basically saying, along with Moses, is fearing God, walking in God's ways, loving God, serving God, and keeping His commandments, in practice means doing justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. It's not about what you do externally. It's about your heart. It's about the circumcision of your heart. And in the context of Micah, and in the context of Deuteronomy 10, there is a special emphasis again on this group of people. The fatherless, the children, the widow, the women, 
and the foreigner, the immigrant, the alien, that are usually grouped as the poor. And God again shows this special heart for them. So God's requirements from us in Micah, all of them have to do with justice. Because they're not related to sacrificing stuff to feel good about ourselves or external things that we can give up, but they all have to do with things that go beyond our appearances and dig deep into our motives and our heart. This is what justice in the Bible does. It moves us from thinking about ourselves to thinking about others and God first. Let me explain a little more about this. So if we notice the three things that God requires from us is the first one is to do justice. And this word, which is the word mispah in, 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 in Hebrew, has to do with the proper administration of the law. Meaning that everyone should get what they rightly deserve. On the negative side, this, this means that people who commit a, a, a crime, they should be punished. The, the, the criminals should be punished. But on the positive side, it also means that every human being should be treated with the same dignity. Because that's what they rightly deserve. So doing justice also has to do with how we treat each other, the right administration of the law, the right practice of the law. Doing justice has a social connotation that implies our conduct towards others. Doing justice means raising our voice for the voiceless, fighting for people's rights, providing the correct treatment of others, giving up ourselves to a cause that seeks to correctly apply the law, even if that means that we're not going to get any benefits out of it. Amen. Based on Deuteronomy 10, this especially includes this group of people mentioned, the widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner. To do justice has to do with how we treat others by respecting their rights. It's not just about giving things. It's about how you handle yourself with others. Are you rightly applying the law of God in dealing with other people? Is your behavior around everyone right? That's what it means to do justice. That's the first thing that Micah says. He says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to treat everyone the same with dignity. The second thing that Micah says is to love kindness. And this is the word hesed, which means unconditional love. It has to do with our internal posture towards others. It's about how we relate or how we see others in relation to us. To love kindness, kindness in Micah means being kind to others because we perceive others as better than us. And I'm not making this up. This is precisely what the Bible teaches us. And we'll see this when we, when we get to, to the part of humbleness or walking in humility. Loving kindness or love kindness has to do with how we perceive others. And as Christians especially, we have to continually be reminded that people are bearers of the image of God. This means that anyone and everyone, despite their, uh, of their education, ethnicity, financial status, or anything else, deserve kindness and the right treatment. This is different from the first one because this has nothing to do with how you treat them. It has to do with your heart and how you see them. 
Loving kindness means that we see and perceive and treat everyone with the same dignity and respect because God's image is on them. And especially as Christians, we have a whole chapter in James 2 that commands us to be careful in how we see others and how we treat others, especially in the church. We are, in fact, told that we should not treat rich people better than poor people. In fact, James 2 tells us that that is a sin. Because every human being carries the image of God. So when God is saying love kindness, He's telling us, how are you not only treating? You can be nice on the outside, but how are you seeing that person? What is your perception of that person that has that problem? When we drive around the city, how do we perceive others? How do you look at them? It's about your heart. It's about the circumcision of your heart, our heart. It's not about what you do. I don't care if you, if you hand that person a $100 bill. That means nothing to God if in your heart you don't see that person as an image bearer of His image. Love, kindness, and doing justice has to do with that. And then he moves on to walk humbly before God. And this doesn't have to do with how we see others. This has to do with how, has to do with how we see ourselves in relation to others. And this is what I was talking about before. Philippians 2, in fact, tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, listen to this, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That is in the Bible. In humility, this is true humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. This is exactly what Micah is talking about. Walk humbly before God means thinking less of yourself and thinking of yourself less. Being humble means understanding that you're not better than anyone. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what education you have. It doesn't matter the skin of your, of, uh, of the color of your skin. Nothing matters when it comes to being better than others. In fact, as Christians, we should always consider others as better than us, as more significant than ourselves. Charles Spurgeon has an entire sermon on this very sentence. And this is what he says in his sermon titled, Micah's Message for Today. There is a word which Jeremiah spoke to Baruch, which we need to have said to ourselves sometimes. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. You young men of the college, do not be always hunting up big places. Be willing to go to small places to preach the gospel to poor people. Never mind if the Lord sends you right down to the lowest slum. But go and let your aim always be this. I do not desire for myself anything great except the greatest thing of all, that I may glorify God. Walk humbly with thy God. You are the kind of man who will be promoted in due time if you're willing to go down. 
in the true church of Christ, and this is crazy, the way to the top is downstairs. Sink yourself into the highest place. I say not this, that, that even in sinking you may think of the, of the rising, think only of your Lord's glory. Walk humbly with thy God. All of these things that God, Micah is requiring, God requires from his people have to do with justice. They all have to do with blessing others. It, it has to do with giving yourself for others. It has to do with putting others first. And that's what Micah is telling his people that he requires of them. Not just to give stuff, not just to sacrifice your time. He requires that we sacrifice ourselves, that we deny ourselves, that we do justice, that we walk kindly, that we walk humbly, that we make that which is crooked straight. Our God requires justice. He requires that we sacrifice our own self for the sake of others, because that is what justice is. Because that's what, what is crooked. Everyone is selfish. That's what is crooked. And only we're only people that think of our own benefit. And that's what is crooked. And the way to bring justice to a crooked world is by thinking the opposite. By making everything that's crooked straight. Our selfishness leads us to idolatry, to oppression, to abuse, and to all kinds of other sins. But God fixes this. God makes this straight, straight by bringing justice, by telling us and giving us the example of not only thinking of himself, but thinking of others as well. He requires justice from us. And then we move on. And we see in verses 9 through 12 that God finds Israel guilty. And that they deserve punishment. And that's us as well. We all deserve punishment. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of not doing this. And God says in verse 10, Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wicked? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? And the response is obviously not. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. And just like Israel, because of their sin, we're all guilty. Nobody meets the standard. Nobody does justice. We don't do justice. All of us here sitting today, we can give money. We can serve in church. We can read our Bibles. But in our hearts, we're all sinners. We've all sinned by looking at other people like less than us. We've all sinned by making assumptions of people based on how they look or their status. We've all, we're all sinners. And the judge, God himself, calls us guilty as charged. He finds us guilty. And the judge delivers the sentence and the punishment. Verse 13 says, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow. I will make you desolate. And then he starts naming all the things that will happen. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall be hungry. You're going to be able to, to, to sow, but not reap. You're going you're gonna, to uh, tread olives, but you're not going to anoint yourself. In short, the punishment is a life 
of pain and dissatisfaction. A life of trying and never arriving. A life of sowing but not reaping. A life of fleeting enjoyment and pleasure. And this is the curse of the selfish. This is the curse of never getting enough. This is the curse of anyone that only thinks of themselves. Nothing satisfies. This is our curse. This is our sentence. This is our punishment. Because we are selfish and we will never get enough. And we will never be satisfied. The idolater looks for a God that will suit his needs and give him what he wants. The oppressor will rob and cheat at, any, at anyone in order to get what he wants. The abuser will mistreat and hurt others in order to attain whatever he needs to attain or wants to attain. And this is selfish. This is sinful. This is us. And our curse is this. The life outside of Christ is a life of constant pain and constant dissatisfaction. And we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. Unfortunately for, for the people of Micah, this is where, the, this, is where this sentence ends. But we are not those people and we have an advantage to them. Thankfully for us, who have now the full picture, somebody steps in in the same courtroom as a lawyer, as our attorney. And this is the Messiah. The Messiah that was prophesied in chapter four and five, we now know he actually came. And this Messiah, utilizing the same language of a courtroom, comes to be our advocate. And I don't understand why, but in Spanish, every translation of the Bible, when quoting 1 John 2, actually used the word attorney or lawyer. In English, it's advocate. But this is what God says. He has provided an attorney for us. Someone that will defend us. Look at what 1 John 2 says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which means all of us, we have an advocate, a lawyer, an attorney with the Father. Who is this? Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And this is the gospel. This is amazing. This is the best news ever that Jesus is our attorney and our Savior. That none of us meet the standard that we're all sinners, but that we have provided an attorney, someone that will stand before God in our defense. And this is incredible. In this courtroom, God is a judge. God is a prosecutor, but he also provides an attorney for us. And this is not someone that's just going to build up our case and try to say that we're innocent. No, this is actually an attorney that will take our punishment. This is Jesus Christ who comes into the courtroom and says, I will take the punishment. I know the sentence. I will take it. I will take the blame. Acquit them and blame me. He was punished on the cross for our sins in our place. Jesus was sentenced to death in our place and he was treated as a criminal and he was crucified amongst criminals in our place so that you and I can now walk freely. And that is amazing. Jesus Christ came to do justice because he came 
to show us that God cares for us. That God wasn't just willing to give up stuff for us. He was actually willing to give up himself for us. And this is the essence of justice. Jesus is our justice. Jesus is the one who justifies us. Jesus is the person that personifies God's justice perfectly. Jesus has justified us. He has made us right before God. And this is exactly what Romans 3 actually says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that verse. And are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's justice. And I want to make a pause here, a little, a little parenthesis. I don't know why, but in English, many times when you need to hear the word justice, you hear the word righteousness. In fact, if you look at the original version of the, of the, of the um, Greek, the, the, there's, a, there's a, a playing of words here because we are justified. It's the same root of righteousness that we see here. And in fact, we will see at the end that they use again the word justice. So every time you hear the word righteousness, you can also switch it with justice. So verse 25 says, this was to show God's justice because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26 says, it was to show his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the one or the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I just read it in Spanish. This is exactly how it is translated in Spanish. God justifies us to show God's justice to show his justice so that we might be justified by the just. This is the God we have. A God who is a God of justice, but also a God who requires justice from us. This is the gospel. This is the great news for all of us. And if you're not a believer, this this message of justice, this message of love is available for you. All you have to do is believe, repent, and He will step into that court. And even though you're guilty, He will acquit you. And He will take the blame. And He will die in your place. He already did it. And this is free. This is by grace. Not because we deserve it, but because He wants to give it to us because He loves us. And now, if you're a Christian, only through Jesus, we are now able, through the power of the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now able, we are now equipped with the grace to do justice. We are now equipped as God's people to do or treat others well, to give ourselves for others, to love kindness, to see others in a different way to walk humbly, to think less of ourselves. But it's only through the power of the cross, it's only in Jesus and through Jesus that we can do this. And in fact, the message of Micah and the message of the Bible and the message of Deuteronomy and the message of all of the entire text is 
There, your faith is death if you don't have works. You cannot tell me you love God. You cannot tell me that you abide by God's commands. You, don't, you cannot tell me that you truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior if it's not showing in how you treat, how you see, and how you see yourselves in relation to others. So let's be a church that is known by how we do justice, how we treat others, how we love kindness, how we see others, and how we walk humbly, how we see ourselves. And let's be a light and a salt on this earth. In a city that is violent right now. In a city where kids are being shot. We need this message. We need the gospel. And all of us are the ambassadors. We are all the missionaries that after we hear this every Sunday, we, uh, we go out to the entire neighborhoods, to the entire city, and we bring this gospel, we bring this news, we bring this hope, we bring justice to this world. Amen. And we need it. We need it right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your justice. We thank you for your love. We thank you for how amazing you are, how you have treated us, how you have uh, provided and, and given us grace. And Lord, I pray today, especially as a church in Washington, D.C., that you will use us to bring light to a, a, a city that is hurting. Lord, I pray that you will help us be a, a people who bring justice to families who are grieving the loss of a six-year-old girl. Lord, we pray for the peace of our city. Lord, we pray that you will help us stop thinking only of ourselves, of our career, or of our success, that we will see others as more important than us. Help us bring justice. Help us be like Christ to this community, to this city, so that your name be glorified and people's lives saved. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.